is my conversation with Michael Strong. Michael is the founder of the Socratic Experience, a virtual school for children aged 8 to 19, where children get a personalized and purpose-driven education cultivated to develop their unique genius. He's one of the most experienced designers of innovative school programs in the United States and is the author of The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice, and the lead author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. In this episode, we talk about de-schooling society, the future of education, Socratic questioning, and much more. Despite the fact that we can't predict where the growth of knowledge might lead us to, what's your vision for education in 20 years? Well, thank you. Uh, I'm all about learning how to learn. So um, if one can learn anything quickly and well on one's own, then uh, I'll give you actually give you an example. Um, Somebody pointed out the other day that right now, pundits succeed online if they master social media. But AI algorithms will most likely determine what content each of us sees in our um, media feeds or whatever sort, VR or social or whatever it is. And so the next generation will have to be, if you want to succeed in an online world, you'll have to know how to master the algorithms. But we have no idea what those algorithms are going to be. And of course, they'll be rapidly changing and very different. So um, what does it look like to have a mind that can optimize itself interactions with an AI algorithm 20 years from now? We have no idea. Um, is it going to have anything remotely resembling uh, the kind of mastery to complete a high school chemistry or a history course? Not at all. It'll have to be very nimble, very um, attuned to what's going on, very intuitive, very far reaching, very adaptable. So learn how to learn in the most radical, unexpected way as possible. Amazing. And so do you have like a faint vision or some sort of a uh, mountain that you would want to climb or be at in a long-term horizon speaking of and something about education so uh, you know one of the ironies right now is there's enough content online so that in principle anyone can learn anything for free right now it all exists it's all there um i personally feel feel empowered to learn anything and i want anything i want anywhere right now but most people don't you know this is where we still live in a system where most people spend a lot of time in schools and believe they need a teacher to learn something and so i would like to create and i think of it as a cultural issue that may sound strange but um in a traditional classroom the norm is that the teacher teaches the student is the passive recipient the teacher evaluates the student the student needs to do as the teacher says you know there's a whole structure of passivity built in into traditional education whereas my vision of education is that we create subcultures where the norm becomes how do we learn on our own how do we support each other in learning on our own how do we create learning teams learning clubs so that we can be way more effective so I'd like to see in less than 20 years, if possible, um, millions, hundreds of millions of learning clubs, learning teams spontaneously forming. Right now, I'm developing structures to ensure that these learning clubs or learning teams can succeed on their own. Um, Harvard CS50 is Harvard's introduction to computer science. It's the most popular course there. 
Um, you know, obviously a useful, prestigious club or a course, they teach Python. And I'm structuring clubs in my school and for the public where people can learn to succeed at Harvard CS50 by means of a club structure. And once we have um, determined how to do that, then in theory, we can provide protocols so that any group of, say, five people anywhere can get together in a club and succeed on any of these online college courses and thereby educate themselves. Right now, there's a 3% success rate um, of MOOC, Massive Online open courseware uh, courses for say Harvard and MIT courses. We want to take that from 3% success rate to say 50% success rate because you know you would take the four people you respect most and work with them together on taking a course. And yeah, why not, you know, take a Harvard course this year with your friends? Yeah, that sounds ambitious. And uh, Ivan Illich actually proposed this idea of learning webs in his radical book, Descoling Society. And yeah, it's Ironic that there's so much of information and online and the supposedly already existing these online webs. These online web webs are already existing, but we still haven't taken them uh, as an advantage, and we still haven't, um, you know, used them. So you mentioned cultural norms as being one of the problems, maybe, and to solve them, we could make you know the norms uh, as something that you do, like making learning for the sake of learning and having fun while learning. And so, yeah, what do you, what do you think about the book in general, uh, Ivan Illich's Deschooling Society and I'm the Ideas? I am a big fan of Illich. I think Illich got it exactly right. You know, you know, other people too, John Holt, I think Holt got it exactly right. John Taylor Gatto. But yeah, Illich was brilliant and um, exactly right. And it's sad nobody respected him. And or, you know, he was respected, but he got a little bit of attention in the 1970s, now mostly ignored. I'm impressed you know about Illich. That's fabulous. Uh, we now have so many more resources. When Illich was alive, it was harder. And now with um, the Internet, it's perfect for an Illichian age, so to speak. Um, and I think a lot of it is giving permission uh, to people. Again, I, uh, if I wanted to be a conspiracy-based sort of person, I would say the education establishment, K-12 and universities, deliberately oppresses people by thinking them that they need to be taught. I'll give you one concrete example. I once ran into a ninth grade um, young woman who was clinically depressed, hated school, um, was therapy, medications, all of that. And, you know, uh, I told her, look, you don't need school. If you take um, an AP course on your own, you can get into college just taking AP courses on your own with no school at all. She immediately dropped out of school, started studying for the AP psychology exam and was no longer depressed, didn't need medications, therapy or anything. You know, she had basically been oppressed by the system. All she really needed was my permission to say, you don't need this. This is ridiculous. Like, really? OK, like opening opening up the prison, let the prisoners out. And I think that, um, you know, also many parents believe that the system is necessary. There, There's a whole Again, I'm not prone to conspiracy, but, you know, Illich was kind of like this. Um, there's this whole world that tells us in every direction that we need these officials to tell us what we can and cannot learn or if our learning is valid or not. Um, 
But you know, give you one example. Uh, I once took a test. Uh, I, I have no education training myself at all, um, but I once took a test for a teacher education program, and I read the book on pedagogy the night before the test, and I got this highest score in the state on the test. Wow. No, you'll read a book. What most of school, if you read a book, understand it, and internalize it, that's all you need. You know, with math, you have to learn how to solve the problems. You know, but. Performance is everything. School is unnecessary. Skills are valuable. As long as you can perform, it should not matter how you got your skills. Um, so I'm very big on that. They're also in many places, you know, credentialing the systems and say occupational licensure. So you, there are places where you are forced or required to go to jump through certain bureaucratic hoops to have an education or to have certain job opportunities, not the education, the job opportunities in the U S less than many places. And so one of the other necessary things we need to change is to eliminate um, credential requirements and occupational licensure. In the tech world in the United States, uh, many big companies, Google doesn't care about credentials, Apple doesn't clear, care about credentials. And a lot of the big tech companies, they want people who are good at what they do, and they have absolutely zero requirement for credentials. I've known high school dropouts that make hundreds of thousands a year of dollars a year at uh, Google, Apple, that sort of thing, because they just don't care. Can you yeah. code? That's it. Yeah, definitely. If you want to scale, you know, the ideas of alternative education, I think a great barrier right now is the act of credentialing. You know, as you said, some places, some big places don't need them anymore. But if you want to make these ideas more mainstream and make alternative education the norm, then perhaps it'd be great if we want to, we should be wanting to eliminate the need for credentialing. How do you go about doing that? How do you replace the act of credentialing? Do you do some proof of work, something like that? No, it's, it's there are first, there are many paths and there should be many paths. Um, you know, my school is credit experience. We do have, we give students a choice between an accredited high school diploma and a non-accredited one. And some parents and students feel safer with the accredited high school diploma. Some feel as if it's completely unnecessary. You know, I'd say things like uh, SAT and AP exams can be official and give students the credibility they need to get into the colleges they want. In the world of coding, you know, GitHub is a public platform where you can demonstrate your ability by putting great code on GitHub. And other people, other software developers can look and say, um, hey, what does Arjun's code look like? And if you write great code, I've, I've known people who have gotten jobs in tech yeah. by writing open source code and putting it on GitHub. And that today is a better credential than say a computer science degree, because it's actually demonstrating that you know something. You know, in the world of video production, if you do amazing video, that's what counts. In the world of digital marketing, if you can show that you've grown an audience for a customer, that's what counts. And so I encourage people to think very concretely, what does it need to demonstrate proficiency in something? And sometimes it is tests and sometimes it is credentials. That's okay. But in many ways, it's performance-based. I saw a survey of um, digital creatives, you know, people who do creative work online, and 95% of them said that skills are more important than credentials, which makes sense. You know, if you're going to hire a graphic designer, a video producer, an audio engineer, anything like that, all that matters is, are they good at the skill? It doesn't matter what credentials they have. Definitely. And definitely like the whole online world, whole virtual world has made this much, much easier. You know, you can just go on Twitter and connect with people and then 
you're like having a podcast with them next time and it's amazing so and github and all those other platforms are allowing us to broaden the idea of credentialing and proof of work and so yeah that's pretty awesome so yeah you were mentioning how we sort of take it taking for granted that we need school as a society and some people tend to have this view that school should teach certain things like it would be better if school taught you about money or only if you had health and wellness as a subject in school but i don't think we need more things taught at school a lot of adults learned calculus when they were at school but most don't remember it and uh, yeah it, maybe they didn't learn well the problem then is not school i think but that it, it, the problem is not that school doesn't teach you certain things but that it teaches you in the first place well also i would add i would agree i would agree and add force that is i think any time you force people to do anything they're less likely to accept it and do well at it i mean it's so obvious but we've accepted coercive schooling for so long that people forget this but you take your examples finance and health you know many students first of all hate health class at least in the united states they they it's one of the stupidest classes of all and yet most people do want to be healthy long term and i find that you know if you make things optional if you propose things and only have the students first of all if I, if i have a class that's only consists of students who want to be there the quality of the class is an order of magnitude better and it makes sense you know if you're in a class with i would say a bunch of prisoners people who for whatever reason don't want to be there are resentful are angry or you know resisting it destroys the entire learning environment and that's why the model of learning club or learning team is better no matter what you're learning if they were learning you know guitar and half the class hates guitar that would destroy the guitar class so why people think it's good to force people to learn x y or z is beyond me but again that's the norm um and so i found that as long as you make it voluntary um, bit by bit, most people do want to learn things that are good for them. They do want to learn how to make money. They do want to learn how good relationships. They good, do want to learn how to make the world a better place. You name it. If and, and at different rates, some people are ready at twelve, some people at seventeen, maybe some people not till they're twenty-five or whatever. But I actually think in a world where all education was voluntary as opposed to coerced, we would have a better culture, healthier people, um, more socially, more social mobility. Um, you know, I, I see K twelve school as uh, a prison system, and most of the students feel like prisoners, act like prisoners, and it's it contaminates the entire learning experience. One of the analogies I like is. Suppose that we thought that love, sex, and marriage were so important we should force people. And so we kind of had this coercive, you're forced to love here and forced to have sex here and forced to marry here. You know, that would be a disaster. And yet that's essentially what school is. You know, it's something that should be a voluntary, joyful, beautiful activity is all prison all the time. And that's why we have the world we have today. Yeah. There do tend to be a few things in society that are somewhat coercive, but most tend to be around children. Like most norms tend to be coercive around children. And it's curious why children in society aren't taken seriously. Um, I think, or at least I hope that some years from now, we look back to how we treated children the same way as we look back today to how women were acknowledged in the past. Right. So they too weren't taken seriously. But we sort of now radically changed that and women are now given equal rights in most societies, at least. Um, even I'm not sure how and why this difference exists between children and adults, but we want to work towards eliminating that difference. 
taking well, I, I would have a little bit of nuance nuance there. In general, I, I'm sympathetic to the direction, and especially with adolescents. I would say the other thing, uh, going the other direction, you know, I think people should not be abusive to each other in relationships, of course, which means that adults shouldn't abuse each other and adults shouldn't abuse children, but also adults shouldn't let them be abused by children. And so sometimes I've seen people go the other direction and say, oh, let's let kids do whatever they want. And then, you know, some kids... Two-year-olds are, you know, not necessarily mature, kind people all the time. They can be very egocentric. And so, you know, I also think that as we respect the rights of children, we also need to set boundaries. And to give you an example, um, you know, Maria Montessori, who's known for being extremely child-centered, once had a kid who has been really, uh, you know, loud and abusive and so forth. This is in day rain barrels. And she picked the kid up and put him in rain barrel and took him out again, you know, and dunked him in the water, basically. And might be a bit much, but on the other hand, he calmed down. And, and so I would say one of the things that's tricky is we do want kids to be... Um, you know, I, I want I want my children personally, I have two grown children, but also want the students in my school to be loved and respected by their friends. And there are egocentric maniacs, there are narcissists. And so I think part of it is there there does need, need to be some socialization and norms. Um, but again, I think in a healthy marriage, the uh, partners respect each other and, you know, I, I, everybody can get out of hand. And so I, I would just add a little bit of nuance that um, there is a socialization process with children so that we'd all don't become the terrible twos our whole lives. Um, and I, it's, yeah, does that need to be coercive? No. Um, but does it need mean we set boundaries with kids? Uh, I, I literally have have seen adults who let their kids walk all over them. So at least in the United States, it has gone occasionally the other way. So a little bit of nuance. Yeah, I think constraints don't definitely need to, uh, don't always have to be coercive. So uh, you can have constraints that's, that's advantageous to the children, to the parents, both of them, and they don't necessarily need to be coercive. So that works both ways. Yeah, healthy boundaries. I would say healthy boundaries, uh, and that includes healthy boundaries around how the child is allowed to act towards adults. For sure. Yeah. So I want to turn it to the Socratic method of questioning, because your, your school obviously is known as the Socratic experience. And so could you just describe what the Socratic way of questioning is? Sure. So... Um, I'll do a simple version and a much more sophisticated version. There's continuity between the two. So in a certain sense, um, Socratic questioning is simply asking, why do you think what you think? Um, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you understand the world as you do? And uh, that is helpful because it forces the person listening to the question to come up with reasons and justifications for their beliefs, their ideas, their understandings. And it develops kind of metacognitive awareness in the mind. Oh, you know, even in a math problem, oh, I came up with this problem because I was thinking it through like that. And it forces them to examine more closely. I've worked, I've socratically worked children through math problems where they correct their own mistakes because when you call attention step by step to their thinking process, they say, whoops, I made a mistake there. Likewise, in reading, um, when a child misreads something, we can look at the text and I can ask question, why do you interpret this word this way, this sentence that way, and so forth and so on. So on the one hand, it can be very focused and narrow and getting kids or adults to think through their rationales for every step of their belief or justification system internally. Obviously, it's one thing to do that on a math problem or a paragraph, but it applies to the whole world of um, 
beliefs. And so going back to Socrates in ancient Athens, um, he was asking, what is the true, the good, the beautiful, the pious, the just, and so forth. And going to a very high level of abstraction, I see, and in the Theotetus by Plato, one of the dialogues, he basically says, he's looking for consistency and coherence in belief. And so when I would ask you about why do you believe this and this, there's an expectation that you're logically, your beliefs are logically consistent and um, coherent is you don't have kind of ad hoc rationalizations. Um, again, this is a very high level of abstraction, but the philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead once said that he saw all of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. And uh, I would extend that and would say, you know, all of modern intellectual life is an extension of the Socratic principle of consistent and coherent. I would say when in academia, whether it's physics or chemistry or business or literature or Russian or whatever the academic subject is, um, if scholar A contradicts scholar B, then scholar B um, and scholar A need to figure out why they don't agree, why there's a logical inconsistency. And so to our best, uh, the Socratic question is constantly expanding the realm of concepts where we have logically consistent and coherent systems. And that's really hard. You know, in most interpretations of quantum mechanics are some seem to be somewhat inconsistent. So, and, you know, it gets into tricky things, uh, you know, Goodall's theorem and so forth. So at the very highest levels, um, consistency and coherence present interesting uh, philosophical puzzles. But I think as a heuristic, um, the search for logical consistency and coherence is the most powerful dynamo um, in intellectual life and has been for thousands of years. Yeah. And so often, like most of the times, uh, we don't have like people, normal people's minds, they don't, they aren't a consistent and coherent, they, they don't consist of a consistent and coherent worldview, but it still feels like or seems like they do. Like, you know, when you, ask a person like they sort of in their own minds at least know stuff like they know how everything works so, like their mind forms a whole worldview about how things are and how they work they might not be logically consistent and coherent and they don't even know it and so i think explicitly asking why we believe what we believe and you know taking no one's word for it uh nullius and verba the famous latin phrase uh, i like to extend that to take no one's word for it not even your own and constantly question what you believe and how you got to your beliefs. No, oh, absolutely. And kind of going back a little bit, I think of humans and very interested in evolutionary psychology and you know how we evolved in small groups and so forth. And I think we evolved to submit to authority and conformity. That is, it's human nature to respect the beliefs of those who are in power and to respect uh, the social norms of those around us. And th that has a positive impact. It's fundamentally a conservative force, but it can, you know, can be positive. But Socrates was put to death in Athens for corrupting the youth and not believing in the gods of the state. And I think the seeds of truth in that is that by asking young people how their beliefs, or asking also older people how their beliefs are consistent and coherent, he exposed them. You know, you're right, people believe their beliefs are coherent and consistent. When you have a Socratic question, you're beginning to ask, why this and this, why this and this, bit by bit, one becomes aware of, wow, it's, it's, and it's actually 
very hard to have consistent coherent beliefs. And so one often discovers that there are inconsistencies and it can be embarrassing. You know, Socrates would go to the respected people of the state, ask them these questions, wealthy and powerful people. They were embarrassed and felt humiliated. And then the young people would go around Athens also asking adults these questions. And that was not cool. And that's why he's put to death. So, um, you know, it is, it can be very corrosive. On the other hand, that's progress. I see it as the fundamental generator of intellectual progress. So on the one hand, um, you know, there is this kind of conservative norm, believe in authority and social norms, conformity, but we need to welcome Socratic rationality. You know, I went to St. John's College where we do this for four years. We read and discuss ideas about beliefs for four years. Someone described it as how having your most sacred beliefs ripped to shreds every week, week after week for four years. I think that's exactly right. You know, the more different topics one thinks about, it's really hard yeah. to develop consistent coherent beliefs across the entire realm of uh, understanding. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we were talking about, uh, you're talking about how progress depends sort of on the unreasonable man. I forgot who that quote is from, but mm -hmm. yeah, so... Definitely, it is sort of human nature to conform to authority. But again, humans have been expanding what's, you know, what's natural. So like we use our technology and we expand, we, we utilize the power of nature itself. And then we expand what we could do. And so it's not that we have to conform to authority. Of course, there's people who do not conform to authority and progress depends on the unreasonable people, like we said. And uh, yeah, that's just fantastic. So. I'm curious how you use the Socratic method of questioning into your own school, the Socratic experience, and how you go about making sure sure so we have multiple subjects where we use it really across the board but um every day there's a tour two hour block in socratic humanities where we start with um personal growth we ask questions such as how do you learn from your mistakes how do you set goals how do you deal with anger really ask questions about who we are where we're going and why we're going there so it's much more personal then in the humanities itself we read complex texts mostly classics from world civilizations, we read, you know, Chinese, Indian, you know, European, Greek, Roman, all kinds of different texts. But we ask, what does the text mean and why? And so that helps develop reading abilities. We'll also give you a big picture perspective. We also have STEM classes where, with both math and science, you know, we ask how we, we have hard problems to solve in math. You know, how do you how do you solve it? How do you use this technique? Why do you use this technique? How should we approach it? You know, with really hard math problems, um, there are lots of different pathways in. And so it's interesting to see how different people um, develop problem solving strategies. And in science, we also get into questions such as um, why do scientific theories come into being? What are their what are the challenges with those theories? What is evidence? What is theory? You know, why do scientists change their mind? Those sorts of things. So very big picture. Um, so I would say across the board, we set a norm where we're thinking and talking about ideas. We do, you know, in something concrete like our Python class, mostly the kids are working on learning Python. But, you know, if they run into a bug in the program, okay. Why isn't it working? What do, why did you do this? Why did you do that? You know, and we kind of, by means of questions, try to figure out in a very concrete way why this program isn't working. So it can be either big picture, metaphysics, epistemology, the whole universe, or it can be very granular. How do we solve this problem? What's going on in this situation? Sure. That method seems to work in both ways. And yeah, it's definitely a good way to lead a good, mm -hmm. life, a good life. And so, yeah, there's a lot of hype around uh, gamifying learning which you surely must must have heard about. And 
I'm curious what your thoughts are on the process of gamifying learning and how that is to you. Sure. So, you know, I'm a pluralist. And so because I'm a pluralist uh, and so much of education is bad, absolutely. When useful to gamify, gamify. And insofar as, you know, there are different versions of gamification. Some versions of gamification are slow and thoughtful. But I'd say most gamification, kind of the, the whole idea of a lot of games is dopamine driven. Let's let's get a dopamine hit for getting a point, getting a point, getting a point. And I would say that's very much the opposite of what we're doing. We're trying to kind of get people to slow down and think very carefully. And so in some ways, I would say we're the opposite of a gamification, or you could say it's a compliment. So again, maybe for some trivial things, there are places where it might be useful to memorize something very basic, in which case, let's go ahead and gamify it. So you can just kind of, you know, memorize these vocabulary words or whatever. But if you want to get a big picture, thoughtful perspective, okay, let's stop the dopamine hits. Let's develop a different kind of taste, really, for slow thought. Um, make sense? Yeah, totally. Uh, and. I mean, gamification of learning can also be making perhaps the uninterest, maybe the uninteresting to some people a little more interesting, like they could not be liking it first. And, and I would add, by the way, you know, I was thinking of one extreme gamification can mean the dopamine hits. I'm much more interested personally in sandbox games where there's creative opportunity. So if in a sandbox game, then it's not necessarily about dopamine hits there. It can be about what can I create in this universe? Yeah. And that is much more amenable to kind of slow, thoughtful approach we do. And so I would say, uh, you know, insofar as gamification is appropriate, we would be in the kind of sandbox game uh, universe. Yeah, we were at gamifying learning. So you talked there about your sandbox example. And I, I was thinking that gamifying learning can also be a good way to make things interesting, make, you know, the boring interesting and sure the dopamine hits, they do make sense. And there's a time for that. And there's a different time where we want to take things slow and, you know, build it up to that. And that can be interesting as well, of course. And mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard that reading was a big thing for you. and your ideas so yeah how did you go about reading was school helpful for it because i, I don't think it <laughs> no school is, i would say the best part of my education is i grew up in northern minnesota with long winters and very bad tv reception so actually you know because this is even before games video games were just starting when i was late in high school with pong and so forth um so but even television you know is addictive it can be addictive people want to watch stuff they make it entertaining um but i would say i had long hours just to read and i read voraciously i was reading a 200 page book every night by the time i was in sixth grade you know maybe 11 years old so um i spent many hours reading and uh, I think most school books are horrible. I hate textbooks, um, but reading extensively in fiction. And then as I get older, nonfiction, uh, you can, there, in the 19th century, there are a number of people who said, and then I read all the books in my father's library, you know, Abraham Lincoln, self-educated yeah. reading books famously. And so, uh, you know, certainly in STEM with math, you have to solve problems. Um, but in the humanities, if you read a lot, one of the things I actually find is that if you read a lot, writing becomes natural. Many people hate writing in school, and that's because the teacher gives them an assignment. It's meaningless. What do I do this? Why do I do this? But if you are a reader, 
I find usually at some point people have something they want to say and they've got so many hours of um, you know, language embedded in their brain that uh, developing a written voice comes naturally. So I would say extensive reading supports both reading and writing and then understanding just about everything. Yeah, that definitely was true for me. Like I, I picked up some books during lockdown and just for the sake of reading and later I went on to actually reading for the act of learning and having fun earlier. It was actually just for the, for the sake of telling people that I read a book, like actually not, not just telling people, but even like feeling good for myself that I read one book, I read two books and I'm at like the 208th page of this book and, you know, reading those books. But later on, I think I picked it up and uh, yeah, I fell in love with reading and it completely won me. It, so it led me to writing, you know, online and, meeting so many amazing people. So yeah, obviously grateful for the books and stuff. And Noel has this famous quote where he says, read what you love until you love to read. And this perhaps even tells you why most people don't like to read. Uh, It's because they had this bad experience trapped inside a school where they needed to read particular texts. So, so plain and boring and most importantly, not catered to their interests. Um, So yeah, no wonder most people don't read any books and horrible. I, I, I would even push that and I would say for many students, they would be better off spending the years from, say, 10 years old to 14 years old doing nothing but reading than yeah. going to school. Um, I've actually fantasized if I went to a super low cost school, um, just have a place where they come and read and kids read for six hours a day. Um, no teachers, just a quiet, thoughtful place with tons of great reading materials. And I would think most students would actually learn more. If you want, they could do a little bit of math in addition, so maybe an hour of math every day and then just five hours of reading and uh, forget teaching altogether. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned teaching just now, teaching and learning, like most people think learning is a product of teaching. You know, again, Illich's ideas come to mind, but it's not necessarily the case and almost sometimes never is. Like when you're teaching, you're just putting ideas, you're supposedly putting ideas inside of kids' head heads and you're like thinking yeah so yeah we'll just they'll just absorb all the information and throw it out on the test but that's very different from actually learning about things well i would even push a little bit farther and this is obnoxious that i say this but it's true for me personally i find teaching rude that is if i go to a social situation and somebody uh, starts to lecture me and says this, you know, as if they're trying to teach me what a jerk, you know, and um, I I don't like to be taught. I really hate being taught. Uh, I read so much faster than I listen. And for me, all learning should be consensual. And so unless, uh, you know, why would I go to a lecture? Even when I go to conferences, I skip all the lectures. I talk to people at lunch and dinner, but I have no patience for lectures and I have no patience for being taught. So, you know, if I have a question, of course, hey, you know, how do you do this? That's fine. But it should all be on demand when I need it, how I need it. And uh, I find I rarely need any any external help anyway. So for me personally, um, the only time people should explain something to me is when they, I have asked them for that explanation. And if not, it is a rude intrusion on my consciousness. Sure. Yeah. So a final question. I think um, an unconventional education is difficult to attain, even for a single individual. You know, a lot of thought needs to go inside of doing it. and 
perhaps like sometimes when at lower points in time, parents even regret doing it. But, you know, otherwise it's fine. It's amazing that your kid is doing an unconventional education. But now the question is, how do you scale alternative education for the entire world? You know, we we touched on it a little before, but how do we make it the norm of education instead of, instead of schooling? No, that, that's a good question. And, and again, it may seem like a leap and a bit of an abstraction, but for me, a lot of the key is um, certain cultural norms. Um, so that if, going back to the MOOCs, if it was normal to reach out to five friends whenever you wanted to learn something, hey, you want to learn, you know, uh, astrophysics this year, let's let's get together and learn astrophysics. And then, you know, you, you know, again, the materials are already out there, but you need a social environment. But the other thing is... Um, we it, it is useful to have a leader in such a group and so i'm one thing that's really important to me is to train our students to take initiative in a learning group or learning team um, because otherwise everybody just stares at each other what are we doing you know what's going on or they get into social stuff oh let's just talk you know gossip or what you did last weekend so you do need to have uh, situations where it's normal to say hey let's learn this together and you get together and are serious about it and we do see this uh, you know there are spontaneous groups of people learning around the world. I think as we reduce credentialism, as there are more spontaneous ways to obtain credentials, um, I, I am working on frameworks so that, for instance, um, I'm actually working on an entrepreneurial project to create clubs, learning clubs that can be scaled. I don't have a price point yet, but the idea would be a very low price point, but it would include actually going back to your gamification thing. I can imagine a situation where if you're in a learning club, you get points. So if you know, Arjun is the leader every time, maybe he gets five points or maybe there is even a financial incentive so that, yeah. you know, everybody puts in a small amount of money and then the person who leads or contributes most. And you can imagine all sorts of rating systems and that kind of thing. Maybe you actually earn some money for leading your learning club. And if you're known, you could have a, imagine a uh, whole rating system such that top ranked, you know, there would be continuity between best learners and teachers. And so top ranked learners might be in huge demand to lead lots of learning clubs. You know, I, I, again, I don't think you need to be an adult with a teaching degree to teach anything. You need to be a great learner and a great leader of learners. And so I can imagine in that sense, sort of gamified at scale learning club systems. And, uh, you know, once people realize you can do that more quickly, more cheaply, and with more joy than a traditional education, why would anybody go to a traditional you know, institution if they can learn faster, better, better, more enjoyably in learning clubs? Yeah, that's a great answer. I'm definitely looking for, you know, what's in the future, what's next for education. And yeah, that's amazing. Would want to work, you know, solving it and scaling these ideas. So thank you so much for your time. It was amazing having this chat. Uh, I want to, I'll put these links in the description, but still for the listeners, could you tell us where people can reach you? Could you tell us uh, where people could see your school, Socratic Experience? Sure. So it's www.socraticexperience.com, socraticexperience.com. I'm also available at LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter is Flow Idealism. And um, yeah, I'm happy, you know, I'm, I am busy, but I'm happy to respond as much as time permits to people who are interested in this kind of education. I am involved promoting this kind of education in various movements. Uh, I've got a conference called the Liberation of Education next spring that uh, will have 
dozens of speakers in alternative ed. And I really support, I'm a big tent kind of person. So I support anyone who's trying to break down the system and create a better, cheaper, faster, more joyful education for billions of people in the next decade or so. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here again. Great having you on. Thanks, Arjun. Thanks. 